0: heard that uh, Donald Trump's place was raided apparently without cause other than wanting to stir trouble and now the head of the CIA has come out right out and said if they can find him guilty of anything that they will execute him so there is an absolute open threat of assassination of Donald Trump by the very heads of the government. Uh, This is what Jeremiah foretold would happen, and that it will not only be threats, but sooner or later, and probably sooner than later, it's going to break out in violence. Now, whether it's a Trump assassination or somebody else is assassinated, Jeremiah says there will be violence, (laughs) ruler against ruler. And that may be much wider ramifications than just one threat against one man. We shall see how it breaks out. But we do know that there are several scriptures that indicate that we may lose one or two leaders here at the end time. So these are things God said long, long ago, and it is amazing to me to watch it play out just as he said it would. And that's only the thing that's on the table right at the moment. There are many, many others. I just read this morning that Texas is having the hottest weather it has ever had on record, and the drought is increasing. So famine and pestilence are not far away, and prophecies of the Bible are indeed coming to pass before our very eyes. So it is a time to be vigilant, to be thoughtful, and that is what we find here in the book of Ephesians. Last week we covered in chapter 4 the end of it, showing how we are to be a new man and to put on holiness and righteousness and putting away lying, and and all kinds of anger and frustration and unforgiveness, and the difficulties that human beings have when they're walking by the works of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit. And he tells us down in verse 30, not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. The day of redemption here means the day that we are changed into spirit beings. And here is another verse that says we are already sealed. He's going to seal 144,000 before that first resurrection. But many have been sealed in the past, many are being sealed now, and he's going to finish the process of sealing. 144,000 only. That was happening in Paul's day, and it is still happening today. So he says then in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. There are an awful lot of carnal attitudes there that he sums up. That are to be put away, that are not to be part of our thinking, not to be part of our emotions, not to be things that we allow to occur. And those are all things that all human beings struggle with. Well, many human beings don't struggle with them, they just let them happen. But the consequences and the fruits of letting them just happen are not good. That's why you have so many dysfunctional families and dysfunctional relationships uh, in every aspect of life is because those emotions, those feelings are based on selfishness and personal pride and ego. And we allow and have those because of our selfishness and pride. Uh, We're bitter because of what others have done to us. Bitter because of situations we've lived through. And angry. And some people carry anger year to year to year. Uh, And clamor. That's upset. And often see people... Of others because of self, the way others treat us. So we speak evil of them. If that has to all be put away and no malice is to be kept, Uh, who does it hurt? It hurts the one who has those emotions and those feelings. It may hurt the one that you have those feelings against because of the way you treat them. But it has its biggest effect on you and your internal workings, your mind, your emotions, your feelings, and your general well-being and happiness in life are all affected by those things if you have them within you. And God says we are to be at peace inside and that we are to make every effort to be at peace with all men so much as is possible. It's something that has to be worked at. War breaks out naturally. Peace never breaks out naturally. It has to be made. It has to be worked at. And if this is to occur, we have to work at it. So then he says, apart from that, be you kind one to another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, both forgives you. If God is willing to forgive, then we certainly should be willing to forgive and not hold animosity and hate. So many marriages are difficult and bitter because people hang on to things that were said, things that were done, months years ago, decades ago even, still mad about it, still angry. And that is wrong. It has to be changed. And it will be there until it is changed. And it will not go away on its own. You would think, well, eventually it'd go away. No. All it all it has to be done is a little fracas a start, a little Uh, feeling of anger or bitterness or uh, whatever is on the table at the moment and the memory is flooded with all the wrongs of the past and they're used as weapons, they're used to hurt, they're used to win an argument or get your way and that is unfair, that is ungodly. There is no reason to bring up anything from the past and use it as a weapon to try to win the current fight. If God forgave it, whatever it was, then you should have forgotten it. Maybe you can't entirely forget, but to forgive is on another level. It might come to mind, that it isn't fair to bring it up and to use it in whatever current battle is occurring. Uh, All is not fair in love and war. War should not be, and love should be uh, used in patience, in kindness, in forgiveness, and not harboring or holding anything against the other person. We are to become, as individuals with each other, as brothers and sisters, and even particularly as husbands and wives, close as Christ is with the church. We'll see that later in chapter 5. And he does not fight. He does not argue. He listens. And he's willing to forgive at any time, we show remorse, repentance, forgiveness, uh, apologize. He's ready to give of himself. He is not selfish. But we are, and that's why this is mentioned in the way that it is, and the contrast is given between those emotions of the flesh and the way that it should be. Why do you have to move an argument? Why is it necessary? That's just self and ego. But we like to have the last word, don't we? And sometimes you get with somebody and they're going to argue until they have the last word. Then's when it's best just to swallow hard and shut up and let them have the last word. Because there's going to be a response until they get it. And the argument will just go on and on and on. And if you have two people that have the last word, where does it ever end? It just goes on and on. And we cannot take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So vengeance and repaying and getting even is not for us to do whatsoever. It's not fair to go there. All it does is exacerbate the problem, whatever it might be. So then we get to chapter 5, having reviewed that, where he says, be you therefore followers uh, of God as dear children. And dear children are ones that are loved, and held, and appreciated and that we can be thankful for. And God wants us to be followers of him as dear children, not those who pull away, not those who pout, not those that want their own way and break his rules in order to get their way, but those who are dear children, who are uh, responsible, who are uh, ready, willing, and able to, of a ready mind, it's called several places in the Bible, ready to do, ready to help, ready to serve, ready to do whatever they can for others and for each other in different relationships. And walk in love as Christ has also loved us and has given himself for us uh, an offering and a sacrifice to God or a sweet-smelling savor. A little bit dark here. I'm having trouble reading this. But to walk in love. That's peace. That's harmony. It's good feeling. It's outgoing concern, is one way of defining it. Where our concern is for the other, and we love them as we love ourselves. Do you like fighting? Do you like turmoil and clamor? No, nobody does. So then, why do we do our part in creating it and sustaining it? If that is the law of human nature. That's the way human beings simply work. So, the things that cause us not to be dear children then. He begins to name. He says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as become saints. So, what do fornication and uncleanness, sexually, covetousness, wanting that which is not yours, or you cannot have, or is not legal for you, Let it not be once named among you. Where does fornication and adultery and covetousness lead? It leads to broken relationships, broken marriages. It leads to separation from God because sin separates us from God. Those things are powerful things. Uh, Sex is... One of the strongest drives in a human being. One of the top three, you might say. And it is universally, for the most part, misused and abused and causes an awful lot of heartache and trouble and difficulty. It's what it does. Now, it can seem fun because it is a fun activity. But to a lot of people, it is not anymore because they've been misused and abused and it has not been used rightly. They've cheated and been cheated on and it causes all kinds of turmoil and trouble and dysfunction. So how are you going to be a dear child if you break those rules? Now he said... But some want to pursue the temporary pleasures in life, or temporary sin, which is pleasurable. In fact, sins are probably as pleasurable as any, probably more than most. It depends on the person, but with most people, that's the way it would be. Uh, killing isn't something they would normally do, maybe, murder. Maybe under certain circumstances they might, but it's, for most people that's not one of the most pleasurable things is to go around killing people. But going around sexually promiscuous is very, very common. And looked upon as fun, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But it does hurt people. It hurts them emotionally. It hurts them sometimes physically. It can spread disease. It can create closeness that cannot be retained or kept for a period of time. And then it becomes bitter and angry, and people feel guilty, and then they have all kinds of problems as a result, but isn't immediately apparent, but shows up eventually. That's just the way that it is. So he says, don't let that be named even once among you, to stay away from that kind of thing. And covetousness is idolatry, as it says in Colossians 2, because covetousness is simply a matter of desiring something that is not legal for you. And if it's not legal for you, then it is against God's law, and it is against God. So you might think, well, this is just in my mind, these are just my thoughts. But no, they're thoughts that are contrary to God. And that means that you're putting your desires, your feelings, your wishes ahead of God. The things that you might want that are not legal for you. And when that breaks out in church, a church, a congregation... It creates nothing but problems. So he continues in verse 4, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not uh, convenient or not good, but rather giving of thanks. Now here's, I think, probably uh, a comment about humor, jesting. We have to be careful Humor. Humor is something God created. Uh, The Bible talks about laughter. It talks about good times and enjoyment. And humor we see in life, hopefully, every day. There's so much humor and so many things. But when it comes to joking and making fun of things that are sinful, we had better guess best be careful. Because sometimes just talking about those things, thinking about them, or making jokes about them in a wrong way can cause thoughts to go there and can lead to all kinds of problems. So we have to be careful and should be in Thankful attitudes, thankful to God for what he has done, for what he has given us, not wishing for things that are illegal for us, for spending time thinking about them, uh, because that's contrary to thankfulness. If you're in a covetous mood about whatever it might be, you're not in a thankful mood, you're in a grasping, greedy, selfish, I want. Move, and that's not a godly attitude. For this you know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, covetousness and idolatry mentioned right here together, they're linked, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now that's a pretty plain statement. In this world today, fornication and adultery are common, everyday things. A lot of people don't think anything about it. It's just the way they live. It's the way others around them live. And they go along with it. They allow it to happen. They do it themselves. Um, We're in a nation today and in a world and culture that says, Oh, let people do what they want. It's okay. That's the way they are. That's the way they live. So we are patient with it. We put up with it. We allow it to happen, and we say nothing. Oh, that's just the way they are. Well, anybody in that condition will not be in the kingdom of God. That's what it says right here in verse 5, very, very clearly. So we're to be tolerant today. That's what they teach us. Just be tolerant. Well, sometimes you can't change somebody, and getting after them only makes them worse, and resent you for it. So sometimes it's better just to shut up, and they're going to live the way they're going to live until God straightens them out. But we need to be very, very careful that we don't show any favor or like, hey, it's okay, you're not converted or whatever. No, it's not okay. And we need to be very careful in our attitude that way. And if it's within the church, then it cannot be tolerated. You know, you can't We can laugh. That's the way it got to be in the church there for some years, and that's partly why we were spewed out. Because it was not looked upon as heinous sin, but will keep you out of the kingdom of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. So those are things not to be tolerated, not to be cuddled and travel but to be put out. Be not you, therefore, partakers with them. That's the way they're going to be. Uh, be careful not to be partakers with them. And it's really easy when people <laughs> are that way to fall into joking about it with them, to fall into a tolerant attitude uh, instead of... Instead of of keeping yourself from partaking in it, it's easy to make jokes about such things with people that are living that way. But all that does is allow them to continue, and it causes you to maybe perhaps lose some of your own resistance to such things. So don't be partakers in any way. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light to the eternal, or in the eternal, walk as children of light. Uh, We need to be careful about our dark humor, about the things of darkness, about the things that are not godly, and walk in the light, so that whatever you say, whatever you do, would be okay to be seen. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they can be sunshiny, and yet dark thoughts are still darkness. They're not light. For the fruit of spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Works of the flesh are in the things of the flesh, but the spirit is different, and we are to be... Pursuing goodness and righteousness and truth. That's a whole lot different than the people around us. Proving what is acceptable to the eternal. Acceptable to the world and acceptable to God are two different things and they're direct opposites of each other. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but neither reprove them. Stay away from them, for the most part. Uh, What do you do when you're married to them or they are close family or friends? Um, It makes it difficult because they're thinking in an entirely different way than you are. They're going a different direction than you are. And it's best if we can stay away the bath as much as is humanly possible did I say don't reprove them he says but rather reprove them uh, don't give it tacit agreement. don't allow it to to continue and with your semi-approval let's say for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Not something to jest about, to joke about, to carry on about. It's despicable. And if they're doing it, reprove them by the way you live. Reprove them by the way you talk. Uh, doesn't mean you have to be in their face all the time about it necessarily. But they need to know that you don't think that way live that way and don't intend to unless you don't approve of them doing it. But all things uh, are re- are recluved and made manifest by the light. But whatsoever does make manifest is light. It'll come out in the open uh, sooner or later and the darkness is exposed. Wherefore, he says, Awake you that sleep and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. The people out in the world are spiritually dead. They may know the truth, some of them. They have grown up around it. But spiritually, they're dead to it. They're not following it. They're not doing it. Well, we have to walk away from that, and wake up ourselves and arise from the dead. Now, if you were resurrected from the dead, would you hang around the cemetery? Would you sit on a tombstone and say, well, you know, you guys are all dead, but I came up out of the grave, but I think I'll just hang around here because I like being around the dead. Oh, I think if you came up out of the grave, you'd want to get away from there just as fast as you could. You would be horrified that you'd been in that cemetery. Well, we need to be horrified in the same way that we've been resurrected from the spiritually dead, and now have life and light in Christ. And therefore, go to the light. Don't go to the darkness. Stay away from the darkness. Don't sit on the tombstone. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. There are a lot of fools running around doing their thing, just doing whatever they feel like doing, whenever they feel like doing it. We're not to do that. We're to walk carefully, carefully. Now, we're walking and doing a balancing act. I've seen people walking on lines stretched between skyscrapers and doing all kinds of daredevil things that were truly, indeed, dangerous for them, and they could be killed very, very easily. Well, how hard is it for us to try to walk in righteousness with carnal nature and with carnal people all around us and the desires of our human bodies wanting us to do things we shouldn't be doing. It's very, very difficult. It's a tough job. So we are to walk carefully, circumspectly, not foolishly, just wandering through life. Redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. Our days are about as evil as they've ever been right now. And we need to be careful to use our time to to do what God wishes us to do. Has there ever been a more evil time? Well, maybe in the days of Noah... The days now are just as bad as they were in the days of Noah. So we have to walk very certain steps. It's easy to get pulled into the ways of the world. Wherefore, be you not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Eternal is, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Doesn't say you can't drink wine. Just don't drink an excess. An excess of alcohol will lead you to thinking things and allowing you to do things you might not do sober. Because it does, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? It, it, uh, It takes down your guard if you're not careful. A little bit can be relaxing and soothing and helpful, help you relax, but too much can cause you to begin to think things you shouldn't think and do. So whether it be wine or whether it be marijuana or other drugs or whatever people use to uh, make life easier for them, you better be careful. Uh, drunkenness is a state of the mind as much as it is a state of the body. We can be spiritually drunk without ever touching physical alcohol and going ways that we should not be going <clears throat> staggering around and not walking sus- uh, circumspectly or carefully. There are people who do not drink or do drugs who still lie, cheat, steal, murder, fornicate, and adulterate. Uh, without the help of other drugs or alcohol or whatever. Verse 19 gives us a different direction to go. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the eternal. So instead of a lot of the music that a lot of people listen to that does not lead them closer to God, in fact, in many cases leads them away from God, um, what good does that do? How does that help you? You enjoy it, okay, but does it lead you in a godly direction is the problem, and often it does not. Even the love songs of the world, if misused a bit, can lead you to physical relationships that are ungodly. So we have to be careful with music. Uh, Does it lead us to darkness, or does it lead us to life? And we have to make that judgment on a regular basis. But here, he mentions psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, songs that praise God that honor God, that are hallelujah to God. Those are things that lead us in the right direction toward respecting him, uh, loving his holiness, his righteousness, and what he is, is the sovereign of the universe. So he tells us right here, the best kind of music, the kind we ought to use most often, would be that which points us to God, not to self, not to sin, and not to the world, but to God. That should be the majority of it, and very careful with the other. Giving thanks always for all things to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray to God, as Christ said, and give thanks in Christ's name. Uh, if you're thankful and in a thankful mood and desiring thanksgiving, there's no room for bitterness and anger, malice and clamor. Is there? A thankful attitude is a peaceful attitude. It's one where you feel good toward God and man. You're thankful for what God has done for the creation around you or your body which is so marvelously and wonderfully made and use it to his honor and to his glory. That's what a thankful attitude is. Somebody who is negative, who speaks negativity, who puts people down is not thankful. That is not a thankful attitude. That is an evil downputting, downgrading an attitude that leads to strife and discomfort and to hurt feelings. That is what God wants. Singing praise and hymns to God and giving thanks in all things. You should go through life being thankful. Thankful for the breath of life, thankful for food, thankful for water. Thankful for your purpose in life and that you can be a part of the kingdom someday. Thankful for all the things God has given you. Uh, There's so much to be thankful for. And yet we tend to look at the downside and be upset or frustrated with our lot in life. You know, your your situation could be a whole lot better. I mean, a whole lot worse. You know? You might be missing a wife. You might be missing a husband. You might be missing an arm. Well, you could be missing both arms and both legs. Uh, You know? You could be missing your head. There are a lot of things in your life that could be a whole lot worse than they are So be thankful for how good they are. And maybe if you're in a thankful, loving, merciful, kind, giving, serving attitude instead of the old woe-is-me attitude, poor, poor, pitiful me, I have this problem, or I have that difficulty, or I don't have what I want, and you go around miserable and lonely and frustrated because of the things you don't have, instead of being thankful for what you do have. It makes all the difference in how happy you are in life by being thankful to God for everything good that there is. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So he opens a new thought here about us all being submissive and serving, and giving, and willing with each other. Not selfish, not greedy, not seeking our own, always looking for the advantage, always wanting the last word, whatever it is. But submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God. He's writing this to the congregation, so he's speaking to all the brothers and sisters in the church. We should be submissive to each other. Uh, Be thoughtful, be kind, be willing to be entreated, willing to serve and give to each other rather than the carnal human reactions that we tend to get where our ego, our pride gets in our way and then we're offended. No, we're not supposed to be offended or to give offense. You can't do either one. But submit one to another. And then he breaks it down into individual relationships more. wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as to the eternal? I've seen men in the church quote this verse and they expect all women to be in submission to them. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that a man, because he's a man, all women should submit to him. Uh We're not talking necessarily sexually here. We're talking uh, in giving him obeisance in obeying him doing what he asks, doing what he wants. A woman is not commanded to do that just because a man is a man. Now, we should all submit ourselves to each other So man, woman, it doesn't matter. We should be considering the feelings and the needs and the desires of each other and trying to make each other as content and happy as we can. But a wife is told to submit herself specifically then to her own husband as she would to God. Whatever God wants, a woman should be there to try to please him the way she would please God. Now, God likes a happy wife. He likes an obedient wife, a serving one, one who's willing to take care of him, to do things for him, to read his emotions, his feelings, and to be there for him in every way she can. She's not to be pulling away in arguing with and trying to get her own way, but to be seeking to serve and help him do his job as well as she can. That's her job. Now, there's only three verses here in instruction to the women, and I think it was about seven to the men. So, here he addresses women first, but they are to do everything they can to submit to encourage and help their husband. Now, there is a limit to that. If there are ways that he wants that are contrary to the law of God, then we always obey God rather than men. So, you are not obligated as a woman to do anything illegal or ungodly to submit to your husband. He does not have that kind of authority over you whatsoever. But we're here to learn something. And it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. So the woman is to look to her husband and submit to him and follow him as she would Christ. Be willing, be helpful, be serving, be loving, be kind to her husband. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Every aspect of life, uh, whatever that might be. Now, that is a huge responsibility. A man is not Christ. A man is trying maybe to be like Christ, and every one of us fails miserably uh, at that path. So that makes it hard for a woman to treat you like God when you don't act like God. You're putting a burden on her When you are acting ungodly, or carnally, or humanly, instead of godly. So, it's not your job to make your wife's job harder. And he gets into that now. He lays it on the wife to treat her husband like she would Christ. Now, that is very difficult. Okay then, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He was willing to give to his bride-to-be everything. He was kind, he was considerate, he was loving, he was giving. He was willing to lay down his life and to die for us. So it says for a husband to be everything Christ was to his wife. Now that makes her job just a whole lot easier if a man is like, reacts like Christ himself. So the greater responsibility in that sense then falls on the husband to make the marriage work. She's and trying to do everything she can to help him. Then he starts laying it on the husbands. Love them as Christ loved the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So by his example, by the things he said, by the things he did, He was always a perfect example to his wife. Now, how often does Christ come down on us? Very, very rarely. Now, he does sometimes. When we got so out of line, he finally spewed us out of his mouth. That's a pretty violent thing. And we have suffered a great deal as a result of it. But it was done in order to help us to serve, honor, and obey him better. So chastening is something that God does, that Christ does, to every son whom he loves. So he corrects us, sometimes severely, sometimes mildly. The point is not to hurt us. The point is to get us to do better to live better, to live more like him. That's his purpose and his goal. So there might be times how a husband has to correct his wife, but he needs to be sure that it is done in love and in order to help her be more what she should be rather than just to get his way. And that's where most chastening comes is men wanting to get their way. So they get all over their wife, uh, uh, abusing them verbally, emotionally, uh, sometimes physically. All of the above are not good. So his goal then is to present her as a glorious wife, a glorious church, not having spots or wrinkle or any such thing that it should be holy and without blemish. So the way you treat your wife, the way you deal with her, even the way you chasten her, should always be done with the idea in mind of helping her come to righteousness, holiness, and perfection. Spiritual maturity is your goal and your purpose, not just to get your way. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the Church. How do we, as men, treat our bodies? We don't want to be too hot. We don't want to be too cold. We don't want any pain. We don't like to be tired. We want to be fed. We want food and drink. We want comfort. We want ease. We want things to be calm and nice around us. So we do those things so that we might have that. And if a wife or a child gets in the way of that in every way, or in any way, I mean, then we tend to get tough or rough or abusive or unkind, ungentle to get what it is that we want. And that's selfish. That isn't the way it's supposed to be. We can do it over food and drink, we can do it over money, we can do it over sex. And that's one of the big abuses there, as sex is such an important part of a marriage. And should be a very good part, because God made it as a wonderful, pleasurable thing that should be enjoyed by husband and wife together. And it should draw them close together, not put each other apart. But instead of using it as the wonderful tool that God gave, we weaponize it. And use it against each other. He says that we are not to withhold it. We're not to uh make each other sleep on the couch, if you will. It is not something that can be used as a weapon. It is used to help build a marriage, not tear it apart. Now, a lot of men are selfish lovers. Slam bam, thank you, ma'am. Um get in, get off. Get out and go to sleep. Uh, they don't treat a wife tenderly and lovingly and kindly. You know what makes sex good for a woman? It's if she feels loved, if she feels affection, if she feels that you care about her, if it's all those good things, then it can be enjoyable. But if she thinks that you're just trying to do it for your own pleasure and you don't care about her except as a means of you getting pleasure, then it becomes difficult for her and it'll come to the point eventually where she'll either give in to get it over with and not enjoy it all or in some cases start withholding it because the man doesn't know how to love a woman. He doesn't know how to use foreplay and kind, gentle, sweet, loving words to make her feel wanted and needed, not just used. And that is one of the biggest problems in a marriage. And sometimes it is other things that are out of control where they're not showing love and kindness to each other all day long, and then it comes down to time at night for a sexual relationship, and they're not in the mood for it uh, because they haven't been prepared for that. They've been made to do things they didn't want to do. Uh, maybe they've had to miss sleep. Maybe they've had to uh, work hard at something it was not much fun and were not appreciated for it and then they're expected to be all sweet and lovey-dovey and want you to uh, get into a sexual relationship so over time they become they start pulling away and then when that's messed up everything's pretty well messed up now That's under just normal human circumstances. But when people as a youth have been abused, boys or girls, sometimes they have attitudes that are very, very difficult to overcome. Catholic girls generally are taught that their bodies are evil and should never be seen. And sex to them is often a very terrifying experience because of the things they've been taught his children and it takes an awful lot of love and patience and gentleness to even begin to overcome some of those things that have been planted there either through outright abuse or through the abuse of teaching but it is something that God created between man and woman that are to be wonderful and and If it isn't, then there have to be some adjustments made because of attitudes that have been there for a long time or promiscuity or being cheated on uh, all take away from the specialness of a marriage and have to be dealt with and often are very, very difficult. So a man needs to be very, very careful with his wife, he needs to be sure that she feels wanted, needed, loved, and he has deep affection for her as a human, as a brain, not just as a body to be used. And I could go on and on, there have been a lot of books written about this, but he's referring to it here. And he does say uh, that... We are not to withhold ourselves, but to render due benevolence. And that's King James' translation for sex and marriage. Be sure that you take care of her in every way, uh, body, mind, soul. That you don't do things for your selfishness when she's uncomfortable. There's some people that are night owls. They'll have the the TV on loud till 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. or loud music or something, and their mate can't sleep. Women do it, men do it. Not thinking of them, they're just thinking of what they want. Um, What makes them happy? It doesn't care whether their mate is enjoying what's going on or not. A lot of things people do like that. Love your wife as your own body. You make sure that your body gets what you want it to have. Well, make sure hers does too. For this cause, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And that is in a great part, the sexual side of it. One flesh together, melded perfectly and lovingly in a wonderful relationship that pictures Christ and the church, his bride-to-be. And he says that in verse 32. This is a great mystery that I speak concerning Christ and the church. When the Father and the Son decided to make human beings, they decided to make them male and female, they made them where they could not reproduce themselves apart from sex, and that was to be a binding factor. It was made to be as enjoyable between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, to be more specific, than anything because it pictures the very relationship of Christ to the church. Therefore, it is a great sin to abuse sex in any way. It is to be between a husband and a wife only, and not used in any other way. Otherwise, it infringes upon Christ in the church. It is there as a specific type. Of Christ in the church. Now that's maybe a great mystery. But people use it for their own selfishness. For their own ways. For their own bodily desires. And it is a horrible sin. Against Christ in the church. And our relationship with him. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife seeing that she reverenced her husband. Now, she's ornery and selfish and a lot of negative things. It makes her hard to love. It makes her hard to live with in peace. But then if he's selfish and doesn't treat her with kindness and gentleness and patience and all those things, then it makes difficult for her. Now notice, again, that there's a whole lot more written here about the husbands loving their wives than of the wives and how they react to their husbands. Why? Because Christ is the husband. He's the head of the church, the bride, the wife. So he is the most responsible The health, the happiness of the marriage, depends on Christ more than it depends on the church. And the happiness and joy and fulfillment in a physical marriage depends more on the husband than it does on the wife. Now, all have to be godly, yes. Yes. But her job is made much harder by a man who does not live by these standards. And a man has to understand that he is the type of Christ in the marriage. And he leads with Christ-like qualities, with the fruit of the Spirit, not the iron rod of carnality and selfishness. And if he treats her with the fruit of the Spirit, then it makes it easier for her to respond. God made her emotionally to want to give to a husband. So why do we make it so tough for her to do it? Why do we? Because we're carnal and selfish and want our own way, and our own comfort, and we're bigger, and we're stronger, and we can make her do what we want her to do. And we can abuse our position as a husband. And that is done a lot. God put me in charge. I'm the leader here. You do what I say. That's not the way Christ teaches us. He's gentle. He's kind. He's patient. He's loving. And he does not order us about, but he gently leads us and guides us as a shepherd does the sheep. Any shepherd who's always beating on the sheep is not going to have very happy sheep. They need to be able to come to the shepherd and to be petted a little, to be noticed, to be loved, and they respond to that, and they'll follow him anywhere he leads. Well, you need to make it easy for your wife to follow you anywhere you lead. And she needs to be careful that she's following that leadership. But don't use your position as a man, your size, your strength, the fact that God put you in charge as a club. That is the wrong use of your power, the wrong use of your authority. And that's why he talks to the men here more than he does to the women. That doesn't let the women all free They have to do what God says. And the bride has to follow every word of God. Because it is Christ and the Father who wrote the Bible and gave us every word of God. So we, as the prospective bride of Christ, have to follow everything he says. And everything he says is good and right and true and uplifting. So we as husbands then, need to be good and true and uplifting and gentle and kind to our wives. And only when they get really out of line do we sometimes have to use uh, the rod of iron. But that should be rare. It shouldn't have to come very often. <sighs> Treat are the way you like to be treated. You like to have her respond to you in a pleasurable way. Yes, dear. Oh, of course. I'll do that for you. Uh, I want to serve you. I want to help you. I'll do anything for you. Well, he's supposed to return that in kind. In fact, he's supposed to set the example in that so that it makes it easier for her to so do. That finishes the chapter, and I understand it may be hot in the hall today. So, let's close it with that. On YouTube.